Welcome to the Sanction Space podcast. I am Justine Walker, Global Head of Sanctions, Compliance and Risk at ACAMS. This series brings you the stories behind sanctions. What are the trends? Who are the key people? And how do the threads of the past shape future thinking? Joining me today is a very good colleague, Tom Keating. Tom is the founding director of the Centre for Financial Crime and Security Studies at RUSI. His research focuses on matters at the intersection between finance and security. And for those of you unfamiliar with RUSI, it is a UK-based but very global defence and security think tank. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Really great that you're joining us today. Well, Justine, we spent a lot of time together this week, so it's great to be speaking to you yet again. <laughs> Tom, indeed, what a week it's been. And I'm glad you're still speaking to me at the end of this week because we have spent a lot of time together. And to put this into context, I mean, clearly the situation in Ukraine is absolutely getting worse by the day. Sanctions are really remaining part of the package of response. In fact, they are the primary response of international community. The reason we spent so much time together is we were both in the really unusual situation of giving evidence to two parliamentary committees, the Treasury Select Committee and the Foreign Affairs Committee. And this was in the UK Parliament. Both very different committees in terms of membership focus, different questions, but the exact same topic, the sanctions response to the Ukraine crisis. So, Tom, just to open things up, some immediate thoughts from you on the committee's lines of questioning. What really stood out most to you? Yeah, so obviously the Treasury Committee was, I suppose, more focused on domestic issues. So we were also joined on the panel by a UK economist. And actually the headlines that came out of the committee in the evening newspapers were more about the damage that would be done to UK GDP than perhaps the details or the small details of sanctions that we were talking about. So I think that was one difference. Obviously, the Foreign Affairs Committee, I would say, is filled with people who are much more focused on international relations, have quite strong views and well-known views already on Russia, have done a previous inquiry on this topic, which led to their report, Moscow's Gold. So I have to say, I, I found the Foreign Affairs Committee more of a workout. I thought the questions were more incisive, whereas I felt that the Treasury Select Committee discussion was a bit more of a informing them on what's what rather than necessarily facing an inquisition. Yeah, I mean, I would really share that view. The Treasury Committee was absolutely, it was their first inquiry on this, first time really delving into sanctions. So very much at the start of the journey, foreign affairs much further on. From your perspective, what surprised you the most? What stood out the most? Well, I suppose there was a lot of unity. I mean, you wouldn't be surprised, I suppose, by unity. I mean, fundamentally, no one can possibly agree with what Russia is doing in Ukraine. I think, you know, as a witness in those sessions, you always need to be careful not to fall into the trap of perhaps feeding a political narrative. I mean, I did find that one, one of my comments was taken by one of the Labour members of the Foreign Affairs Committee and put up on Twitter as a way of having a bash at the government. So that was, I suppose, slightly unfortunate. But generally, I mean, there was clearly a lot of unity. I think some of the questions were perhaps a little bit unexpected. There was a focus on, you know, should we be allowing payments to private schools, for example? Obviously, a lot of Russians have children in private schools in the UK. So I thought that was an interesting question. It is clearly a concern that has been raised before in the UK. And then one of the things, and maybe we'll come on to talk about this, but I don't think anyone really has yet got their heads around where does this end? 
no one's talking about off ramps it may be too early to talk about off ramps but i guess i would have liked to have had more discussion about what is the ultimate objective here and how do we unwind the sanctions that are being put on at pace Yes, and certainly this week, I was really keen to stress the off-ramps issue. How do we tie the sanctions into what type of de-escalation activity? Because for me also, that's really critical. And as you've already indicated, the Foreign Affairs Committee is way more familiar with Russia issues and sanctions, and their views are by far much more widely known. What do you think is sitting at the top of their list in terms of sanctions escalation? Where do they see things going? Well, the government has made a point, and I think it's been a mistake, but they've made a point of sort of emphasising sanctions on oligarchs. I guess we'll come on to this, obviously more sanctions issued today by the UK on oligarchs. We had to have that conversation. I'm not sure whether that was necessarily the primary topic. I was pleased that they were starting to think about what next. And by that, I mean thinking about energy, for example. Obviously, we had quite an extensive discussion about energy sanctions as we left the committee the oil announcement was coming out of the US and out of Downing Street. But I mean, it was a pretty wide ranging conversation. I think it's probably also important to say that the sanctions conversation in the UK is going on against the backdrop of a new economic crime bill. So a new bit of legislation to try and strengthen the UK's response more broadly to illicit finance. And I was pleased that they also focused on that because, you know, sanctions are dealing with the immediate issue, but strengthening the UK's defences won't come through sanctions. It'll come through new legislation. Absolutely. That economic crime aspect has really been there in the fore of this response to sanctions. And we're seeing that just not in the UK, but also in the US and other jurisdictions as well. You know, thinking about this focus on oligarchs, and as you said, the Foreign Affairs Committee, and to some extent, the Treasury Committee were very, very focused around the scrutiny of the approach to sanctioning oligarchs. You've just indicated we've seen some major names added to the sanctions list. These were not really entirely unexpected. But how important is the targeting of oligarchs? Has this muddied the waters? Does it have a role to play? What does it achieve within this whole response to the Ukraine crisis? So in my mind, there are sort of three buckets of of sanctions when we're thinking about Russia. There's the infrastructure, so the financial services, the freezing of bank assets, the disconnection from SWIFT, the blocking of Russian aircraft and ships from ports and airports. Then there is the funding of the Russian economy. So that's energy, which obviously is beginning to develop. And then there is the focus on oligarchs. And as I said, I think the UK government has certainly put out there as a metric, how many oligarchs have we sanctioned as an indicator of progress? And frankly, I think, as I said to one of the committees, if there had been only one sanction issued so far, the sanction on the Central Bank of Russia, that would have been far more impactful than sanctioning 100 oligarchs. But the oligarchs are symbolically important. And also, if anybody is going to have an opportunity to whisper in the ear of Vladimir Putin and say, look, mate, what you're doing is completely wrong, completely inappropriate, unacceptable. You need to reverse what you're doing. It's going to be one of those people. That's a long shot, but we have to put pressure on them. And they have to realize that being close to Putin, they might think has been a benefit for years and years, but actually it's a curse. Yeah, yes. I mean, we're going to be talking about oligarchs and oligarch wealth now for many years to come, whether it's about property, overseas property registers, whether it's about bank accounts in the EU, UK, Switzerland, other places, whether it be from the US side and all the focus we have there. So that's certainly one which I think is going to play out in a number of wider economic financial crime manners. But 
I want to pick up on a tweet because you tweet quite a lot and I still really need to get into this tweeting. I have to really improve on this. But in the past couple of days, you tweeted that once the initial shock to the system caused by sanctions wears off, data integrity will be critical. Government must ensure that it provides private sector with the necessary information to implement sanctions effectively. Explain this, Tom. What were you meaning? What's behind this? Yeah, so I think at the moment, the financial system has frozen. I was speaking to a friend this morning who's a senior in, a, in one of the private banks, and she was telling me, we're just not doing any trades with anybody who's got any connection, even vaguely, with Russia, regardless of whether they're on the sanctions list or not. We're just simply not doing anything. And over time, I think people will start to pick through the names, the connections and so on, and be a bit more nuanced in the way they approach the asset freezing and the blocking of transactions. Now, in order to be effective, and let's remember, it is the private sector that is delegated the responsibility to implement sanctions by governments. In order to be effective, we need to make sure that the private sector has as much information and as clean information as possible. Um, at the moment, we've got this somewhat extraordinary situation in the UK where the government says we've sanctioned X hundred entities. We've got BBC reality check going, well, I'm not sure it's necessarily that clear from your data. And then we've got some data vendors putting out charts that have very small number of UK sanctioned entities. So if the data vendors are struggling to come up with clean data to deliver to their clients, the private sector on the front line, then that would suggest that data integrity at the moment is not what it should be. So this is something that we need to focus on in the context of implementation and enforcement of sanctions. And actually, enforcement of sanctions was certainly something that the Treasury Committee really picked up on as well. And that data integrity, and I, I really agree with you around the numbers, you know, governments are saying this is the people we've sanctioned. And we're sort of saying, where are those names? How are they sanctioned? And we've been trying to unpack that. And it is phenomenally difficult. And not just in the UK, but across the board, although obviously in the EU, we've seen hundreds of names come out and a lot bigger list in the US and some of the other G7 countries as well. As we were leaving the Foreign Affairs Committee, and indeed it was sort of breaking during our evidence session, there was that move to target energy, a ban on, and certainly the US announcement around the ban on Russian oil, liquefied natural gas and coal. The UK shortly indicated they would follow, the EU indicating a phased reduction of Russian oil. Clearly another significant step in terms of sanctions escalation. But it also provoked a very strong response from the Kremlin, who accused the US of declaring an economic war and that they were considering their response. You know, where does energy sanctions take us? What sort of territory are we now in? Are we moving into some serious Russian counter sanctions, do you think? Will they turn off the gas supply to Europe? As I mentioned, I think one bucket of sanctions that we haven't yet focused on is reducing the income of the Russian economy. And we know, obviously, hundreds of millions of dollars flowing into the Russian economy from energy sales every day. So if we are serious about degrading the Russian economy and, importantly, ensuring that the funds available to Vladimir Putin to fund his military are reduced to the greatest extent possible, then we have to reduce sales of energy. Now, I think this is going to be a challenge on two fronts. The first front is that it's relatively easy for the UK and the US to take these measures. It's clearly much more difficult, existential perhaps even, for Europe. A, they need the energy and B, they are vulnerable to counter sanction. But I think another area that we need to start thinking about is we're very quickly going to be asking countries around the world to take steps 
that perhaps harm their own economies on behalf of confronting a war in Europe. And those countries may not want to get sucked into this. They may not want to have to reduce their imports of Russian oil. So we're going to have to work very diplomatically with these countries uh, in order to get them to sign up to this agenda, this democratic agenda, I would argue, that the West is pursuing against the Russian war in Ukraine. And then, of course, the other thing, and I think we should talk about this, is the whole issue of food security, which we also talked about in one of the committees. Russia and Ukraine are major exporters of wheat, for example. Again, we're going to be asking countries around the world who've got nothing to do with this conflict to take pain in the name of confronting Russia. And that food security aspect, we dealt with that in the previous podcast. We've also seen a lot of news around just how this is impacting bread prices in Yemen, other parts of the world, whether it will lead to secondary conflicts. Tom, how do you think we get that international consensus? How do we bring everybody on board to imposing these sanctions, whether it be the Russian oil embargo or at least a commitment to wind down their reliance on Russian oil to deal with the trade aspects. How do we achieve that? Well, I think there are three categories of country out there. There are those that clearly oppose Russia now uh, in the EU, the UK, the US, other allies within NATO. Then you've got those who maybe are going to align with Russia. I'm not sure we can do much about them. But there is clearly a group of sort of ambivalent countries who are in the middle. Look at how people voted in the UN General Assembly vote recently, the abstentions. So I think what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to make it easy or easier for them to make the right choice. And of course, it is absolutely the right choice to stop buying Russian oil, for example. So we're going to have to work with countries like Saudi Arabia, like Venezuela, we hear already, to ensure that countries that we want to sign up to this mission are not going to suffer as a result of signing up to this mission. So replace their sources of oil, as an example. I think that's what we're going to have to do. And it's going to require some holding of noses. I mean, you know, for the US authorities to engage with Venezuela on making money out of exporting oil again, that's going to be a tough but a realistic conversation that they're going to have to have. Yeah, I think I raised this point as well in the committee that actually this could play out in many ways and shapes and forms for other sanctions regimes, whether it be Venezuela, whether it be a renewed Iran nuclear deal, because if we're going to disconnect Russian oil, we have to find somewhere else to bring it from. We both discussed this week in terms of impact, the big standout actions have been the measures on Russia's central bank, the partial swift disconnection, and now we're moving into that energy territory. And we can also throw into the mix the Belarusian sanctions, which we've also seen come out this week. Tom, where does this take us? What's next? Well, there are clearly still a number of sanctions options on the table. As our foreign secretary would like to say, there are obviously banks that are still functioning. There are banks that are still connected to SWIFT. Energy sanctions are beginning to emerge. I think what is going to be really necessary is for Western allies to have a constant drumbeat of the issuance of sanctions. I think we need to not take our foot off the gas, as it were. Obviously, there are some attempts, and I don't think it's been very successful today in Turkey, but there have been some attempts to have peace discussions. But realistically, the West has two tools in this fight. One is the provision of defensive weaponry to Ukraine, and I think we'll continue to see that ramp up. But the other is applying as much economic pressure as possible to the Russian economy. And this will have a clear effect on the people of Russia. That is clearly terrible. But in reality, we are in a position where the objective of the West has to be to crush the Russian economy. It's as simple as that. 
the steps that Putin has taken in Ukraine are utterly unacceptable. And there is a consequence to that. So I'm afraid the outlook is not positive at all. And as we know, of course, sanctions take a while to bite. And there will be many people who suffer as a result of these sanctions who you know, will be unfortunate collateral damage, not just in Russia, by the way, but also cost of living crisis we have in the UK, energy prices going up, cost of petrol going up. You know, this is going to have repercussions around the world for quite some time. Yeah, those repercussions around the world and how this is going to hit people globally. We're only seeing the tip of the iceberg now, but that's certainly going to be there. Finally, Tom, to conclude, in your mind, in terms of sanctions and de-escalating the conflict, what should the international community be most focused on? Well, as we talked about in the committee, there obviously hasn't been any particular mention of, of off-ramps. I think the US sanctions uh, review talks about the importance of sanctions being reversible. So I do hope that that thought is going on at the moment, even if I personally think it's far too early to be talking about off-ramps at this stage. But I do think that some sort of de-escalation ladder needs to be developed so that, and it absolutely should not be uh, in advance of, but so that should the Kremlin decide that it wants to reverse what it's done, or at least stop shelling towns and cities, killing innocent people, bombing hospitals and all of that, that there is something on offer. But I have to say, I think we need to be very, very sure that the de-escalation occurs on the Russian side before we start talking about off-ramps. I mean, we've seen the way that Russia, or the Kremlin at least, digs in in these scenarios, creates frozen conflicts, and it's absolutely critical that we don't allow a normalization of the aggression that Vladimir Putin has perpetrated on Ukraine, not just in the last two or three weeks, but also over the last eight years. Tom, thank you so much. We are really truly at a watershed moment in terms of sanctions policy and whether this will support a de-escalation in Ukraine and how that will play out for the global community. As we both stressed during the committee, these tools have never been used in respect of a G20 economy, the 11th largest economy in the world. You know, we don't have any parallels to really know how this is going to play out. But I hope listeners haven't found today's discussion useful. Keep following our podcast. Look at our sanctions space, Ukraine Rapid Response Hub on the ACAMS website. We have a lot of information there about the individual types of designations, what that means for compliance, what it means for the international community. Tom, again, thank you so much. For my part, I really appreciated that we could both offer evidence together this week and for your insights you've been able to share with us today, but also through the committee sessions. Thank you so much, Tom. Justine, thanks for having me.